2: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes.
3: All right. Yeah,
2: I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
3: Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country.
4: Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown, who is in the Bay Area, and I'm about to get my COVID jab. Yes, I'm that old. I've come up that early in the list. Today, we are joined by writer and journal Emma Burnell in London, Drew Morrissey, the ideological free agent. We have the programme manager, from a non-profit, rather large non-profit, Julie uh, Cooper in London. We have actor Terry Malloy in East Anglia. We have Mick Wright, the editor of the Conquest of the Useless, uh, uh, the Media Criticism Newsletter in Norwich. Businessman Alex Bishop in Hamilton, in Canada. We have Clint Lacy, ex-Capitol Hill staffer in Washington DC. So we have Doug Levy who's a pundit over there in Marin County, just north of San Francisco, We have Steve O'Neill, the ex-deputy head of policy for the Liberal Democrats in London. Now, I've probably forgotten somebody. So if I've forgotten you, please unmute yourself and just announce yourself. Patrick, what are your credentials, sir?
5: Oh, I'm a former m and lawyer who saw the light and quit to dedicate my life to studying philosophy. So now I'm a full-time philosopher and democratic theorist,
4: And you're a bloody intelligent bloke to boot. Ursula, why don't you unmute yourself and say hello to the
3: room?
6: Hello, everyone. I'm Ursula, currently living in London. I'm a digital marketing professional. Grew up in the US, um, but actually born on the Caribbean island of Munster.
4: Fantastic. In a week that has seen women in London organise a vigil to reclaim the streets after the disappearance of Sarah Everard, have Meghan and Harry not only just put the boot into the royal family, but to the institution of the monarchy.
7: Were
6: you silent or
7: were you silenced? I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear and real and frightening, constant thought. But we had to go to this event and I remember him saying, I don't think you can go. And I said, I can't be left alone. Because you
6: were afraid of what you might do to yourself.
7: If you zoom in, what I see, is how tightly his knuckles are gripped around mine. You Mm. can see the whites of our knuckles because we are smiling and doing our job, but we're both just trying to hold on. So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What
6: about how dark your baby is going to be?
7: Potentially, and what that would mean or look like.
4: The Duke of Cambridge has defended the monarchy against accusations of racism made by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, saying, We're very much not a racist family. So that's that then. Mick Wright, why don't you start things off, sir?
8: What do you want me to say, Royfield?
4: Uh, Whatever (laughs) is in your heart and in your mind, sir, be true to yourself. Go for it.
8: I've been covering the very much the response of the media to the interview and I think um the reason that the interview is so is causing so much hysteria in the in the British tabloid press and and to be honest I include papers like the Times and the Telegraph in the tabloid press now because wh- while they print in a uh, larger format they still um have tabloid tendencies the reason that the tabloids in britain are, are, are losing their minds over it isn't really about uh perceived disrespect to the queen or whether or not the royal family is racist by the way the royal family is absolutely definitely racist there's plenty of evidence to show that but it's actually about the tabloid press being under the un, under the microscope the key point in this is the one that is not being mentioned in many british press reports which is where harry said the royal family are afraid of the tabloids. We, we there's a deal with the that it's a it's a it's two types of devils doing a deal with each other. The the devil of the royal family with the devils of the tabloid press, and 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 that's what this is. Ultimately, uh, uh, why it's uh, continuing to be such a big story beyond the 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 minor constitutional element it's because ultimately harry's very low down in the in the line of is, is succession is he's no when it's not a constitutional crisis in the way that the um abdication was or anything like that the right. real reason that the press are so obsessed with this is because the press themselves have been criticized uh and they want to frame it as harry deciding to criticize the press because megan made him but actually, if you go back and you look at how he's been speaking for many years, going back to even his late teens, he's been talking about the problems he has with the press and the fear that he had that any woman that he uh, married or had a relationship with would end up in the same situation that his mother did. So, yeah, for me, it's a press story which uh, people look at as a as, as a as a royalty story, but really, it's about who has the power in in britain how do you scrutinize that power and what is the power and distorted power of the british media
4: it's it's a press story it's also a constitutional story but for some people it's also a story which which they um have resonance with on personal level because of the accusations of racism ursula where do you stand with with the key accusation that the British royal family is racist. How did you view uh, Meghan Markle becoming a senior royal just three years ago?
6: So I welcomed it. Um, I, I must admit that I was not you know familiar with her work um, because I've been living in London for about a decade now. But I was excited for Harry. I was like, whoa, finally, you know, he's got some swirl. Um, it's going to be great. This is, you know, a new way forward for the mark. And um I think the press in the beginning were quite welcoming um, and through the, you know, them getting married, I myself went to Windsor um, as I had done for, you know, William um, to see him get married and it was really excited. And then, you know, perhaps about six months after things started changing in the press, we started seeing, you know, negative stories and it was just like, Whoa, what's happening here. So, you know, when um, they did the interview, and they brought up, you know, the conversation with um, the member of the royal family and asking about Archie. Um, it didn't uh, surprise me, um, but I wouldn't say that the family overall is racist. But the conversation and whoever, um, you know, started it, they definitely have some you know, questions to answer because it's definitely rooted in racism. So, no, I wouldn't say the family is racist. But there are racist elements, um, you know, happening through that family. And they need to check themselves Um, because, you know, it's crazy that in under, I mean, how long have they been married? And it's like they've already had to, you know, run off to like America. And as someone who was living in uh, Chicago when, you know, Princess Diana got murdered and watched that funeral and seeing William and Harry and all that history, And now to kind of see it, you know, repeating itself. And thankfully, Harry had the good enough sense to say, you know what? I'm going to take the woman I love, my child, and we're going to get the, you know, heck out of here. He did the right thing. You know, they may not like it. You know, the British public may not like it, but he did the right thing for his family. And from that standpoint, I totally respect him. And he may not be, you know, higher up in terms of the line of, uh, succession, but Harry has strong uh, support, you know, across
4: the board. There was a concern, obviously, about baby Archie's skin colour, and Meghan has struggled with thoughts of suicide. How much of this is it just a story of racism, a lack of compassion, of understanding of an outsider coming into the royal firm? And also, how much does this story kind of highlight our attitudes? to the anguish that somebody goes through, uh, being in the public eye, uh, Emma Burnell.
9: It's a combination of a number of really, really toxic factors. Um, it's racism. Absolutely. Uh, and the difference in the way that she's treated from Kate is, um, makes that very obvious but there's also uh, a certain amount of misogyny in it um she's an outspoken woman she doesn't behave as she's supposed to um and there's a class element um there's a you know a huge snobbery um and i remember when kate middleton was first going out with um william there was a quite a bit of snobbery about her mum and how her sort of slightly ghost mother had groomed her to be a princess. But of course she was groomed to be a princess and whatever the hell that means. So she behaved as the Royal family expected her to behave. And Meghan Markle didn't. Um, and I think it's really interesting because all little girls, uh, not all little girls, thank God I wasn't, but a lot of little girls are brought up to think that they want to be a princess um it sounds bloody awful um i wouldn't mind a bit of the money in a free castle to live in but the rest of it you can frankly keep as as viewers listeners will expect from my previous um, appearances on this show surprisingly enough i'm not a big monarchist um i think it's utterly ridiculous to expect one family to pop out a head of state um, tell them that they are God given and have a God given right to rule, have them interbreed for hundreds of years, and then expect these people not to be toxic monsters.
4: Mm. Um, Alex, I know that you've done some work on on kind of mental health. One of the surprising things for me uh, was some of the reaction to her saying that to, to Megan, saying that you know she had these suicidal thoughts, and then people saying. Uh, I don't. I don't believe that. Very surely, if somebody's saying they've had suicidal thoughts, that's somebody who's in deep mental anguish.
2: Absolutely, it's uh, someone myself who's had suicidal thoughts about a decade ago, and you know, frankly, is is going through something with a, a sick child in the hospital. Um, I can fully identify with with what was going on on screen. I think what what I was seeing was there was a lot of authenticity that was being displayed uh, during the interview in terms of body language, Um, watching, watching as, as Megan describes her mental health struggles, she's, you can see her trying to surprise, like suppress her feelings. And then she started crying. And then I think, I think there was uh, a, a lot of really authentic behaviors and, 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 cues that we could all see when that part of the interview w- was being played so for me I, I'm going to lean in and, and really believe her that that this is 100% authentic
4: Gillian mm. uh, I know um, you uh, you weren't born in the United Kingdom. Uh, you, you came to the UK as a teenager to study. Um, I, I know that my mother, uh, when uh, Meghan uh, w- started dating uh, Prince Harry, was incredibly excited because she said, in a way, son, uh, this is validation uh, for us as a people, we've kind of arrived. Um, but I'm kind of quite interested in your perception of what the royal family is but also about being um, a woman of color and coming to the united kingdom because i think part of the the tragedy of this to do with Meghan markle is that um not only is she a woman of color she's also an outsider to britain she is an american etc so can you set it w- w- within that context how how did you view Brit- britain being um, a, a young woman of color when, when you first came and then does it have any kind of parallels uh, to uh, the tragedy of Meghan Markle and her not fitting in, and and the accusations kind of of racism? Let me understand a little bit of your story, being a woman of color coming to the UK.
10: Yeah, sure. I'll do my best, Um, Yeah, I came. I came to the UK in my early thirties, mum of two young kids, and actually, I'd had. I did study at one point, but I'd had quite a extensive career at that point when I moved here from the Caribbean Um, and I did really find the experience of settling here um, quite traumatic um, and really kind of surprising in the sense that I didn't kind of expect the levels of um, uh, feeling of kind of unwelcome and unseen and really undervalued and it's at so many levels um, from you know Um, The mums in the school playground who don't give you the time of day, the job opportunities that you don't get. You know, I had to start my professional life from the bottom again. Um, And, you know, um, you feel that you don't have anything to offer, you know, that and there's an amazing lack of curiosity, which I find is interesting here about you as a person. You know, then, of course, there are all the big narratives that, are, that pervade the society that have a huge impact on how you feel um, and make you feel that actually it isn't that welcoming place that you kind of are led to believe. But you know, like your mum, I and I'm no I'm no monarchist, but I did feel um, excited when Harry was bringing this mixed race woman into the royal family. You know, all the possibilities that that could have for Britain. You know, really being multicultural. Um, But you did realize, did think that he's being brave. um, And so there's this sense of foreboding. um, You know, obviously knowing what Diana had gone through, the criticisms of the press and a worry that this might not end well because despite the fact that you know there was excitement at the beginning of this glamorous celebrity and perhaps it didn't really talk about race and you know britain always wants to show its best self to the outside world but there are these undercurrents and you know you can sense the discomforts with the picture and then as you know ursula was saying it started to build and these speculations about her mother you know, the whole debacle about her father and her sister, and then, you know, all the pictures about her begins to be painted, and that's the similarities that you do feel that, you know, this angry kind of Black woman who has criticisms, you know, you, you, you're supposed to be grateful that you're kind of in this country, and um, that it, it, of course, is better than where you were before. I think she, as others have said, she's came up against a toxic mix of the press, um, the royal family, um, this kind of, you know, the British kind of white privilege is a huge amount for her to have to deal with.
4: Mm-hmm. I want to slightly now move this away from specifically from the story, the event of this week and to and, and really to look at uh, some of the fallout and specifically let's start with the media. I know Mick kind of led in with that, but the there were so we've had these accusations of racism in the royal family and then there is the UK media bias against this this, uh, brown-skinned interloper. Uh, When Meghan started dating Harry, uh, the Daily Mail ran the headline, Prince Harry's girl is almost straight out of Compton. Um, I see that for what that is. But can we not see that as a rags-to-riches princess story? She was already rich, but an incredibly romantic princess story. Or is it just pure out-and-out a bigoted line dripping in racism, full stop. Patrick, why don't you chime in?
5: Is the question really about whether it is all just about racism or is it about what the story has become? Clarify that for me, Warfield.
4: It, I think it's really it's about the what the story has become. What uh, mirror does this hold up to British society? Because there was a, a moment well, three, three, three plus years ago when, for a moment, This was Britain looking, going into the 21st century, multicultural and proud. And it was relayed in our royal family. Now, I want to come on to whether we should even have a royal family, because I think that what this has highlighted is this weird soap opera at the heart of British society. And I will out myself um, and uh, uh, many of the panel know I'm, an, I'm a sentimental monarchist. I just think, you know what? There's an old lady, she has a magic hat on her head. Let her, let her continue doing her business and whatever. But to all intents and purposes, it is an anachronism and a nonsense. And uh, functionally, I'm a Republican. But I think this has held a big mirror up to British society because it had a certain level of potential. And within a matter of two or three years, it's imploded spectacularly.
5: Is it really telling us anything that we didn't already know about uh, the institutions? If it is, what is that? Because I'm not sure that there is anything new to come out of this. Personally, this story, to me, yeah, you mentioned the soap opera elements, which I think is probably one of the the, the main, uh, you know, the main reasons it's in the news. It's the soap opera. People love a good soap opera. Although, to be perfectly you know, honest, I think there's better soap operas out there. I love, um, you know, I-, I love Succession, for instance, and it's got better actors in it than Meghan Markle. But that said, um, the human story is perhaps the the one that is most touching, not just Meghan Markle's uh, depression and suicidal thoughts, but also the, the what what Harry said, which is something that we don't really think of, but a lot of people feel the feeling of being trapped in their lives. Now, he said that everyone in the royal family is trapped, and uh, I feel many people can relate to that. You know, A lot of people don't leave jobs they're unsatisfied with because they have mortgages. But the point that you're touching on, I'm not sure it really did reveal anything about uh, Britain on a societal scale. Perhaps it, it, it brought back to the, to, to the front of our, of our collective imagination how anachronistic monarchy is, um, simply because, ultimately, what is the value of the British monarchy? What is it that we love about the British monarchy is that it it stands for something. It stands for certain values that we believe Britain should should be identified with. But is it really possible for a family, let alone a person, an individual, to stand for a, a pluralistic society in the 21st century? I mean, I'm i not sure that it would have been conceptually really possible in the 17th century, but we went along with it because most people there, most people with divergent opinions didn't have voices. You know, they were too, too busy picking cabbages out of the ground. But today, where everyone has a voice and has the ability to tell their story and relate their lived experience, whether or not others listen to it, that's a different matter altogether. But today, in a day where we have so many different stories and lived experiences, does it really make sense for a person or a family to represent a nation? I'm not sure it does.
4: OK, uh, how Patrick, could- I'm going to qu- quickly jump in because we have two Canadians um, on the stage uh, and... Uh, Queen Elizabeth II is not only the Queen of the United Kingdom, but she's also the Queen of Canada. Uh, Laura, how has this whole uh, debacle played out in Canadian media this week?
1: Terribly for the royal family. The discussion about whether or not we should finally break away from the Commonwealth uh, is robust right now. And you had our prime minister say that he wasn't going to discuss the actual allegations, but that a lot of Canadian institutions are based on racism, systematic racism and colonialism. And the remedy is not to get rid of the institution, but rather to fix it from within. But frankly, the reason why he and other politicians have to take that careful footing is because anything that opens up the Constitution, anything that gets to that level in Canada can also get into the issue of separation. And it lets people sort of get in there and mess around. And we've tried so hard for the last you know, 30, 40 years to keep Quebec as part of Canada. So nobody wants to get into that kind of a crisis. But I have to say... The uh, Queen is also part of the reason why Canadians aren't going to deal with it at this time, because there's a loyalty to her. Uh, But when she's gone, there is no such love for Charles. And or I would argue William in particular. I think that Harry was the one that people saw the values of the monarchy in uh, coming from his mother, Diana, and and what he's done with the Invictus Games and things. And if Harry felt trapped and is is happy to be liberated, I think it's not just Canada. It's the other, what is it, 54 Commonwealth countries. There's discussions happening, especially on the African. Continent about how soon do we get out of this. And frankly, to all of my British friends on the call, you guys got to do it first, because it's much harder for us to extract ourselves from the monarchy than it is for you two. So if you want to go ahead and get the ball rolling, it would help us out.
4: Terry, is the clock now ticking on the institution of the monarchy? Can we not uh, get away from the fact that this is Somewhat of a nice fairy tale irreverence, but when it crashes into our lives in in such a way that actually we need to now move on as as a country,
3: the royal family is an anachronism. It always has been, and it's it's based on empire. It's based on colonialism. It's based on subjugating other races to your will. And in that respect, I, I have no respect for the monarchy. I'm a pure republican. Um, we are talking here basically about a story between uh, a dysfunctional family and members of that dysfunctional family. And it's taken the world stage because of their so-called status within the world. And it's sadly, it has to be played out in, in that way. I don't know how much uh, people uh, in the in the states or in Canada know about the actual day to day workings within the palace and how people are restricted in what they do. I have to say, some things that have come out have made me even more shocked. You know, the fact that you have to curtsy to the Queen in public in, in private. Yeah, I mean, Meghan said, you know, she didn't, but she's a grandmother or she's your mother or whatever. You yeah, know, curtsy. I and mean, he says, but she's the Queen. The, the whole thing about queen and kingship is people's reaction to you. The monarchy maintains this silence. They maintain this bubble and they hide away the things they don't want to be seen. I oh, can get, go back to, you know, hey, um, Queen Mary's son, uh, Prince John, who was, he was sort of fine until he was about 10. Then he de- developed severe epilepsy and they hid him away. He suddenly became a, like a non-person, I mean, often very well, but you don't have anything that is of not of the ordinary front and centre in the monarchy. And I think they also, I know Mick will probably agree with this, they have to kowtow to the press in the same way as the government has to kowtow to the press. Otherwise, they're going to be roasted by the press. Mm. The press has gone from a situation of... of, of displaying and well, Terry, uh, just, telling just, news just, just for something before, that is actually now much more toxic.
4: Just before we completely go back on to uh, the press and the media reaction to this, so I just want to quickly ask our um, American uh, panellists today, why does America have, the American media anyway, have this fascination with the British royal family. I'm very aware of it here. It's a second or the third question which I'll get asked about when people ask me one when I'm going about my business in the Bay Area. Oh, tell me about the Queen. How does it all work? etc. Uh Drew, being as you're new uh, to Mid Atlantic, why don't you go first, sir? Why do so many Americans have um a fascination with our peculiar institution?
11: Yeah, great question. I, I think I think that this there's has been some great conversation around hierarchy and and what I said in in our, our chat about sort of bloodline hierarchy. I mean, I think our only way to enter nobility for us, because we are so we're such a capitalistic society and we we have this sort of religion of of achievement that's often tied to money. And our only way to enter nobility is either through through celebrity or more often uh, wealth. And so while that is successful and stuff it's less it's much more tenuous and I, I think that we we all kind of long to be of what we call over here good stock and so the fact that you know the uk has stock embedded in its uh, culture and its hierarchies i think that there's a little bit of an itch that we all want to scratch that hasn't and i'll end with uh also just the pomp and circumstance of it all which is pretty much the least american thing possible we are uh, originally a sort of a frontier uh nation of sorts uh we're rough we we've elected uh generals and and uh you know country folk uh ever since we first started uh so there's just a little bit of of cool cool factor as well
0: You have an Airbnb, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
6: Mm.
4: Uh, Clint, a large part of the appeal of this interview, not a large part, a small part of the appeal of the interview was Oprah Winfrey and the Oprah Winfrey confessional I woke up in the morning to wall to wall, whether it was MSNBC, whether it was CNN, whether it was a whole load of American news outlets running this verbatim. Can you explain to to us uh, the power that Oprah Winfrey um, actually has that, you know, celebrities, the great and the good royalty will come and divulge their inner kind of secrets to her and then from that then we're going to go back and really talk about the whole kind of media perspective but I'm just I'm utterly fascinated to maybe talk about the power the power of Oprah and uh, the effect that she has on, on on American media and celebrity and then any other thoughts that you have and then we're going to go back into really talking about the media reaction uh to this week's events
12: Yeah. Um, I think, I think sometimes, uh, today people forget that Oprah made her career as an interviewer. So I saw some people who were a little bit surprised, uh, that, that Oprah had managed to conduct such a great interview. Um, I think they just kind of forgot that that's how she made her career, but she is kind of one of the iconic, um, self-made, uh, women of color in the United States. Um, you know, obviously her rise is, is, I, I think, um, Kind of piggybacking on what Drew said is, is the American fairy tale, um, the the way she came up and, and the status uh, uh, she achieved and everything that she accomplished. So I think that that just, um, you know, it really is uh, decades um of cachet that she's she's accumulated both in terms of, of media savvy and, and just, just straight up wealth and media power. Uh, so, I, I mean, I just I think that she is the the powerhouse in a way that um, I'm not I'm not sure that there is anyone that that compares to her in that way. Um, uh, just to, to kind of dive into um, one thing that I've been seeing, um, I, I have been seeing a little bit of a, a, a disjointed um, reaction from from people in the U.S. Um, the conservatives seem a lot. More agitated about this whole thing. Um, and I just find that kind of fascinating. Uh, I, I think that for the most part, um, people in the US are looking at this as, as an interesting story. And, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here, but it really does seem to be Republicans and US conservatives who are who are ultra agitated about what's going on here. Um, and they're, they're just kind of running these very uh, um, lurid, uh, manufactured outrage, um, around this story. Uh, and so I just think that that's a, a, an interesting, uh, revelation that, that there really isn't anything that the Republicans or conservatives are, uh, are going to leave alone when it comes to the potential for, uh, creating, uh, uh, an opportunity to own the libs.
4: Doug, I know that I haven't actually asked you specifically a question so far. So don't think, Mr. Levy, that that you're going, going to be forgotten unless you have something incredibly pertinent, witty, pithy you can say quickly now before we quickly move on. I'll hold my pith for now. You hold your pith. Your pith is well held. All right. So this We're week, taking is,
10: the pith, Doug.
4: <laughs> this week has seen two significant departures in UK media. First off, we had P.S. Morgan. Boo. His departure from GMB uh, followed the announcement of some forty-one thousand complaints to the regulator Ofcom over his remarks on Monday, which cast doubt on Megan's statement that she'd been denied help with mental health issues um and this was after he was confronted by weather weatherman alex beresford um on the show then we had ian murray who said he, he was stepping down as the executive of the society of editors after issuing a statement that many felt downplayed the problem of racism in the media steve o'neill which of those two departures is uh, more significant Piers Morgan, the blowhard walking off of a TV set and being knifed in the back by, he, by his colleagues saying that they'd just about had enough of him, or the fact that um, the executive director of the Society of Editors issued a statement that many people thought was tone deaf, and then he's gone.
13: I mean, I don't know which one is more significant. I'm tempted to say you and Murray, because the UK has a sort of long and slightly sore story with regulation in the press. And uh, I mean, thinking back, I mean, we've seen how Meghan's been treated horribly by the press over the last few years. But about this time last year, there was the Caroline Flack case. And of course, very sadly, she killed herself after being harangued um, unethically by the press. Going way back, you go way back to sort of um, 2011 time, we had this whole huge inquiry, the Leveson inquiry looking into phone hacking uh, around the tragic killing of um, Millie Dowler was example that um made the news most so it goes back a long way that opportunity back in the uh sort of 2010s to to get proper regulation was mostly lost they had a kind of fudge um and i think what we're uh hoping to see or would like to see is a stronger regulation that stops the press behaving in this this kind of way uh, which is um pretty unhumane at times
4: it's 2071. will we still have somebody with a, a magical shiny hat lording over us saying that they are our head of state as i've said before i'll out myself as being a sentimental monarchist i'm a case of um somewhat for me it's inertia they're there um they look nice on the money it, it is one of our usps When when i travel around the globe people do talk about the monarchy but I, do, I don't believe that they're any better than us, and I don't think anybody really does. So the question is, in 50 years' time, will we still have a monarchy? Who wants to jump in and answer that?
11: 2071 is far a bit out, right? But I'm going to say yes. And the reason I'll say yes is because, well, for, you know, even the, the lording over us, you know, paradigm, I think, I, I don't know if, if I would even term it that way even now, you know, in, in as much as Canadian friends can speak to that. I mean, I, I don't believe that um, the monarchy is, is, is extremely operative in day to day life. Um, but I think that the ceremonial nature of it will continue and um, you know, I mean, 2071 probably will be the end of Williams' reign. I mean, this is actually not that you, far. You, right? you, so- you know
4: what, I, uh, Drew, you're completely correct. When when I said 50 years hence, um, I, I too far into the future. Let's say in 20 years, I think that's a bit. I think that's
1: a, a time scale
4: we can all kind of get our heads around. Laura,
1: it'll be a much diminished monarchy. We have it uh, in response to Drew. I mean, there's a constitutional and the ceremonial nature of being part of the Commonwealth and the role of the monarchy. And while the Queen sort of does her, her constitutional duties, if you will, through the governor general, which we don't have one at the moment, there was a big scandal on that recently, but it's the ceremonial stuff. I mean, that's, I wouldn't say it's our USP like it is for you guys, but it certainly is, you know, something that is older Canadians, especially cherish. you know, they they look very well on both the Queen Mother and the Queen um, for various reasons. And so I would imagine that there's going to be a breaking away because how do you support uh, an archaic colonial based institution that has been accused of racism and not taking into into consideration the desperate needs of somebody who is suffering with mental illness it is so incongruous with everything we stand for as canadians of our values we have you know our leader of one of the other parties jagmeet singh saying you know this is we we cannot be a part of this institution because of the racism and we have trudeau saying you know we are we don't want to be a country that is like that. So when you have that incongruity, when you have that disconnect between what we espouse as our values and what is being shown uh, with this family, it's going to be increasingly hard, especially for the younger generations who don't feel that nostalgia, who don't have that connection or that reverence. Uh, they are going to push to break away. So I think it'll still be around in 20 years, but it might not have the entire Commonwealth behind it. Uh, and as I said, we have our own issues to not get into a constitutional discussion in Canada. The The wounds are still fresh for us, but I can see other countries, absolutely saying, how do we possibly even have dinner with these people when they come and visit if they espouse these kinds of beliefs?
4: Emma, I'm going to quickly uh, come on to you, but after Doug, because I know Doug hasn't actually... You're still holding your pith, aren't you there, Doug? I'm good at something. All right, great. So you're holding your pith. All right, here's, here's a question for you, Doug, because I know you're a little bit of an Anglophile, If we were to remove the monarchy, wouldn't we be removing, as far as the world is concerned, one of the the key elements that makes this uh, weird uh, congruence of four countries, provinces uh, unique in in the world? Uh, Would we be diluting our world brand? I'm not talking about us um, internally. We'll still get on. We'll do our own thing. We'll be fine. But would the world somewhat
12: sigh? Well, I'm sure some people would. But the real question is how many people want the brand to be white supremacy? Because that's what the monarchy is. It's the definition of white privilege. I mean, you're born into the role. That's kind of the antithesis of equity and equality. So uh, I'd say dilute the brand. It'll get better.
4: Mm. Uh, just quickly just resetting the room. This is Mid-Atlantic. We uh we are a podcast. Um, if you are new to Mid-Atlantic, uh, we do have quite a few people um listening on to this show. We are recording this for our podcast. After th- this room, why don't you go onto a podcast of your choice, type in Mid-Atlantic show, and you will see that we've done crumbs some probably some 200 episodes after uh, during the last seven years so uh, why don't you subscribe and uh, go through some of our old shows Um, emma you wanted to chime in
9: just on the monarchy point i think the monarchy has a habit of lasting and they're pretty adaptable they're pretty good at it and they will definitely last until the queen dies um, and they'll last a bit beyond that the question will be whether charles can follow in the Queen's footsteps by being basically a cipher for everybody else's beliefs as to who she is and if uh, or if he continues to be as activist as he's been as the Prince of Wales where he's tried quite often to get involved in political decisions if he does the latter he will find a lot of backlash and that may be the moment Because I don't think these soap opera moments are the real crisis for the monarchy. I think the real crisis for the monarchy will be when they try to act as traditional kings and queens have and get involved.
4: Mick, The Guardian ran an expose a couple of weeks ago about how the monarchy does meddle into some bits of British, uh, British law. Uh, could you kind of remind us and flesh out that for us exactly? Because I'm a little bit sketchy about what it actually, actually was revealed. So fundamentally, we have this image that the monarchy is, um, they're never called ceremonial but they literally are ceremonial. But it was revealed that actually they are well, getting their hands on state pa- state papers. Go for it, Mick.
8: Starting with talking about the way that um uh, the royals have interfered in um uh, in the way that people in in duchies and other places like particularly Duchy of Cornwall can can whether they can own their own homes, what they can you know various property uh, laws around property that the that the the monarch. Uh, stuck her oar into and Charles stuck his oar into but the thing I would say is the Guardian does that expose every five years or so um private I mentioned this and 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 I noted it too that basically that expose comes up a lot and then people forget five years later that it came up before uh certainly Charles uh, wrote uh, over the years has written letters um the black spider letters which are letters that he's written to government pushing certain viewpoints that he had on things Um, the notion that they never interfere with politics is a fiction um, but many things about the royals are a fiction i i I mean to a certain extent i agree with uh, 85 to 90 percent of what emma just said but the the notion that we know nothing about the queen is actually a, a kind of tabloid fiction as well we know quite quite a lot actually you know, her obsession with dogs and breeding dogs, her obsession with horses, the fact that she'd rather be a country woman, really, than be queen. Because if you, re- if you think about it, the queen is really an accidental queen in the sense that she was coming into her teenage years when she found out, oh, I'm going to have to be queen because her father was obviously never going to be queen, a king. You know, her father was not meant to be king. He was meant to be the king's brother. Uh, and fundamentally, what I would say about this whole thing about the royal family being, you know, our brand and all this kind of stuff, almost all uh other european nations had royal families or still have royal families of some kind that they sort of keep in the cupboard or have as a kind of um doily or knick-knack you don't have to keep them as a central part of your political system and uh you know the french had the right idea when they got rid of theirs quite some time ago
4: Well, the thing is, the French got rid of theirs and then had them back in different guises about another three times after that. Yeah, and
8: then they got rid of them in the end properly. And the other thing I would say about that is the one thing people always say is, oh, what about tourism? The French still do incredible tourism to their royal palaces and stuff without the expense of having royals living in them.
4: Mm, fair point um what i do want to do uh because as i said much earlier on is that emma i'm going to turn the microphone over to emma in in a couple of minutes to to talk about um the disappearance of a woman in london uh this week so i do want to kind of wrap up on on this topic i think we're, we're all kind of in agreement here this is somewhat of um An important story in terms of what it shows us about Britain, but if I'm listening to Patrick correctly, um, this isn't told. It hasn't necessarily told us anything which we didn't know. I'd slightly push back on that, Patrick, because I, being somebody of, of immigrant stock. Um, I know that many black people were actually excited and actually thought this was a seminal moment uh, in, in British, um, British cultural history post the Windrush when Meghan Markle gained part of the royal family. But, it, but it's crashed and burned. All right. We're going to move on because I know that Emma, um, this is a really important point and, and And Emma really would have preferred to really talked about this. So Emma Burnell, over to you. Why don't you move things on for us, Emma?
9: I don't want to talk particularly about the case of Sarah Everard, obviously, um, because it's an active case. There's uh, a person who's been arrested and they are currently um, being questioned. um, And I wouldn't want to say or do anything publicly. And I think we could all make sure that we don't do anything that might jeopardise the case, um, because I think it's really important that it gets seen but what i do want Emma to talk just just about... just
4: before you move on slightly because a, a, a lot of people in the room won't be aware just of the general outline of actually what's happened so you could just do that without sure. you know yeah thank
1: you
9: okay so um i think it was either sunday or monday night a woman was walking home um from um, clapton to brixton two places that are about maybe half an hour's walk i think this is a walk she'd done regularly apparently She stayed to main lit streets. She was wearing flat shoes. She was wearing um, jogging sort of trousers. Um, She was doing all the things women are told to do to keep ourselves safe, because apparently that's our job. Um, And she disappeared. And there has been um, a search for her. And since then, um, there has been someone who's been arrested, who was an active member of the Metropolitan Police Force. um, And that's the person who's still being questioned. And uh, there have been remains found, but not yet identified. But when they announced that, you kind of know how that story ends. So that's the story of Sarah Everhard. Um, she, she, um, She was walking home and she disappeared. And But what I wanted to talk about was the reaction to what's happened. I tweeted uh, yesterday morning, I think, um, something along the lines of, we know it's not all men, but we absolutely don't know which men it is. And the response to this has been extraordinary. I mean, I thank God I have heavy filters on my Twitter. I maybe see about 10% of the responses, and I know I'm getting some abuse, but I'm not seeing it. There have been kind of three different types of response to not just my tweet, but to the discussion that women largely are having on Twitter, and it has been um, mostly women being involved in this discussion. Women telling each other their own stories, We haven't got time. I would have made you all guess how old I was when I first saw a stranger's penis. But I'll tell you now, I was nine. I was nine. It was broad daylight. I was with a friend and we were walking home from swimming. And a man took his penis out in the street and said to us, wouldn't you like to play with that? And we giggled and ran off because instinctively we knew that was the the, the response that would threaten us least. But I've never forgotten that. And that was, that's my first memory uh, uh, of sexual assault. Um, probably there were plenty more, or I was certainly, almost certainly with my mother while she was, um, you know, called or wolf whistled or, um, you know, had people try and touch her on the street. Because it, this is not an individual experience. My story is not an individual story. Mine is at the milder end of most of the stories people are telling. So the response has been a lot of women sharing their own stories like that. Then the response comes from men in two different ways, some of which is not all men. And you're like, yeah, fine. And when the ones that are absolutely going to be sexually abusive to me are born with a tattoo on their forehead, then I'll stop treating you with suspicion on the street. Until that happens, then part of my job of protecting myself is to be very aware of what's happening around me. I've noticed in particular, I've been watching men on the street during the pandemic when we can't walk close to each other and they're really aware and you see them being really aware of everyone else in the street and where they are. And I just look at them and I think, do you know? That's what we do all the time. So, and then the other has been just men being quite, so some men have been incredible, really sensitive, um, trying to work out how they have, a role in the conversation without taking the conversation from women and that's a difficult balance because this is a conversation that men should be having more than women because it is up to men to change and it's up to men to change other men but at the same time obviously this is the conversation that women should be leading so it's a really complicated balance and I get that the men who want to be the good guys in this find that hard Mm. but um and then the other is just men being either just completely dismissive of women's experiences, you know, uh, that whole it didn't happen or it's just not like that or not all men or men just being vile um, because they can and it's social media and why not? Um, so I think it's really important that I shut up now and maybe some of the guys come in with their response to what they've seen, what they felt over this week as their female friends and, and acquaintances have been telling their stories.
4: I'll I'll go first. I was utterly shocked um, mm-hmm. between the ages of 15 when I had my first proper girlfriend, Jane Glue, at uh, Great Bar Comp, between the ages of uh, 15 and 22, that every other girl that I seemed to uh, be in contact with, so this would be, you know, my girlfriend's friends, had exactly the same story that you relayed, Emma up until that point i was in blissful ignorance being a young man um in in birmingham but it it, it it's utterly uh, an epidemic and it goes through the whole the whole gamut of um the my first three girlfriends um you know said they'd been flashed to exposed uh, walking home and lewd crude words uh thrown their way and it went all the way to um, sexual assault and physical uh, assault. And it is something which we don't talk about enough. Um, I completely understand when you say, um, you know, and, unless men can be tattooed on their forehead, how do you know that, that we're not all the same? But of course, then I, I want to say, but, but we're not all the same. But I will can really admit I thought this was something which we'd slightly was slightly starting to put behind us but um we can all be shockingly complacent especially men who become wrapped up in you in, in our male privilege and we feel safe um navigating public spaces in a way that women don't so and I'll, I'll just say that and then I'll, then I'll step back if somebody else would like to um hold their hand up and, and say something, Please feel free.
2: Alex Bishop here. So I've I've had conversations with my son and my while my daughter's present. And, you know, I have a conversation about Sophie with my daughter Sophia. How do you hold your keys when you walk home? She's 12. When you walk home, and she shows my son, you know, between the knuckles. I'm like, Ben, why did she do that? And my son looks completely perplexed. Like he doesn't get it. And Then we had a conversation about safety and we had a conversation about you know our role as as men as allies when we see other men other boys making bad saying bad things or or making bad decisions and i don't know what else to do other than that laura i know has has had some really interesting shows that she's hosted on tv specifically about um misogyny and 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 violence and and what we can do and i just want to i want to listen to you as much as i want to share
4: laura just just before you jump in because we have a hard out so laura you're going to have the the last word on this you have a hard out in literally 60 seconds so over to you laura
1: well it's a problem that's of course not just there in the uk it's here in canada as well and when my 10 year old daughter goes for walks i have to give her you know, the explanation of here's how you look, watch for cars, don't talk to anyone, all these kinds of things, conversations that I've never had to have with my 12 year old son. And there are lots and lots of great men who realize that, hey, this is our responsibility. You know, the women aren't doing anything wrong. They're going for a walk. <laughs> How is it that we're allowing a culture that puts them at a higher level of risk and jeopardy? Uh,
4: Laura, we, we, we're slightly losing you. Listen, everybody, uh, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, we're strictly one hour here at Mid-Atlantic. If you've been uh, listening to us, uh, why don't you follow our room on Clubhouse? It's quite simply Mid-Atlantic. We do this once every fortnight, translation for American. Americans uh, once every two weeks where I get together some of my uh, best friends and we talk about uh, a political issue of the day. This week has been somewhat different. Normally what we do is we do one US topic, one UK topic, and then we do a compare and contrast. But because of the, uh, the global nature of this media feeding frenzy, which has been the Meghan Markle and Harry uh, story this week, we focused on that. It's not a normal uh, format, but please, we hope to see you again in a couple of weeks' time for another roaring, barnstorming, insightful, an hopefully enjoyable episode of Mid-Atlantic. And if it's your first time with us, why don't you uh, go onto Apple iTunes or to Spotify and go and listen to some of our previous output. So thank you, Doug, Clint, Patrick, Ursula, Mick, Alex, Steve, Emma, Drew. Uh, we also had Jilly uh, and uh, and Terry uh, for your um, participation today. I've got to go and get my COVID jab and uh, that's me. Toodaloo. Goodbye, stay safe, look after yourselves. Bye
9: bye.
7: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.